everyone, my name is Anastasia Lapatina and you're listening to This Week in Ukraine, a new video podcast from the Kyiv Independent. Every week, I sit down with one of my newsroom colleagues to dive into Ukraine's most pressing issues. Today, we're looking into Russian war crimes in Ukraine and beyond, a topic that many find simply too shocking to unpack, but also one that has history, patterns, and explanations behind it. So, to discuss Russia's culture of violence within the military, I'm speaking with Danilo Mokrek, a reporter who recently joined the Kyiv Independent as a part of a newly created war investigations unit. Along with two other journalists, he works in documentaries about Russian war crimes in Ukraine. Danilo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So in the last few weeks, there were several really gruesome videos of Russian war crimes that appeared online. One video showed a Russian soldier literally beheading another soldier, or allegedly Ukrainian prisoner of war, with a knife. And I think that one, when one reads something like this or watches those videos, most people wonder how come an individual, a single human, is capable of something so terrible. And of course, personal morality is definitely at the center of this issue. But I want to begin by talking about the institution, about the Russian military itself as a whole. How big of a role does it play in the Russian war crimes that we're seeing in Ukraine? Well, I do think it's a culture, and I do think that we have um, quite enough of evidence to say that they often receive direct orders to commit war crimes. Um, just recently, we've seen a few interviews of uh, Wagner mercenaries um, given to Gulagunet when they when they talk that. Then they talk about uh, about killing Ukrainian teenagers and uh, killing Ukrainian children. One of them speaks of um, of uh, uh, delivering a control shot to a five to six years old girl. And uh, actually, this is not something new. Uh, this is uh, something we have heard from the beginning on the conversations uh, intercepted by the security service of. Uh, Ukraine, I, um, I remember when Russian soldiers talked about receiving orders to kill civilians, to kill children, no matter who, just, uh, just because they were told to. So uh, it's, a question, uh, it's a question of hierarchy, of orders they receive, mm -hmm. but it's also a question of culture. I think we'll get to it. But an army can't become criminal overnight. So has the Russian military just always been that way? Well, I would say it has. Uh, I remember a conversation I had last year with uh, Dr. Jonathan Leader Maynard from King's College in London. We have talked about the um, crimes against humanity and atrocity crimes and genocide. And uh, he pointed a, a, a very important thing to me that, you know, there is this common misconception that when there is war, then civilians are uh, always massively dying, are always targeted, um, which is not uh, always true. Actually, only one third of wars um, lead to mass killings of, um, of civilians, children, and, uh, and so on. So um, knowing this and uh, keeping this in mind, we can say that uh, we already see something specific to the Russian army. If we look at how the Russian army uh, waged wars in the modern times, we can go um, as far back as Chechnya, first Chechnya war, second Chechnya war, 
there's been a lot of atrocities and a lot of mass killings in that time, just to point uh, some important ones out. Uh, the Semashki massacre in 1995, uh, at least 300 civilians were tortured, raped, and killed in a, in a Chechnya village, in a Chechen village. Then the uh, uh, Second uh, Chechnya War, uh, there was um, the uh, Novi Aldi massacre in February, uh, year 2000. Uh, also a cleansing operation and several dozen civilians were just murdered. It's important to point out that uh, international NGOs and uh, human rights organizations talked about it. And the UN at the time turned a blind eye to it. And there's a, a very strong passage about it in one of Anna Politkovskaya's books about Second Chechen War, um, when she describes how uh, the then uh, Secretary General of the UN, Kofi Annan, just completely disregarded uh, the information about uh, Russian atrocity. And we have seen it uh, later uh, in Syria, for example. But if we look more broadly at the Russian culture of warfare, uh, we can see it centuries back. We can see it in how Russia conquered Caucasus in uh, uh, the 19th century. And you know, one of the highlights of, uh, of Russian so-called great culture, uh, Mr. Poet Pushkin, uh, he has written a big poem about conquering the Caucasus, the prisoner of the Caucasus. Well, uh, I would invite our listeners and our audience to read the very end of the, of the poem, uh, the celebration of killing, the celebration of subjugation, the celebration of blood spilling. This is, this is written in the um, 19th century. And this actually describes Russian war in 21st century. So there's a, a clear line, you know, through centuries. And when we're talking about Ukraine specifically, what kind of crimes are those? Because, I mean, it's not just killing of civilians, murdering them on the street. There are many more of them, right? Well, uh, we can say that it's all over the spectrum, actually. It covers the spectrum. It's war crimes. It's uh, crimes against humanity. Uh, it's atrocity crimes. And uh, we do have uh, acts of genocide. And it's uh, quite obvious to, uh, I would say, anyone who looks closely at it. So um, when we're talking about war crimes, we mean um, just like, you know, ordinary uh, transgressions against um, international uh, humanitarian law, uh, like uh, killing of prisoners of war, like torturing prisoners of war, like detaining civilians uh, and so on, attacking uh, civilian infrastructure. When we're talking about... Um, more uh, systematic things like crimes against humanity and, or trusty crimes. Well, uh, some episodes uh, in occupied territories like mass detentions of people, mass torturings of people, um, filtrations, uh, deportations of children. And if we are looking beyond the acts themselves, we are trying to understand the reasoning behind it, the intent behind it. We see genocide. So it's a pyramid, if you want. That's, that's, we, 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 have, we have really all there is uh, described in the, in the international law. 
And then there's also the attack on religious sites and cultural institutions, maybe not something people typically associate with war crimes, but are they also war crimes? They are obviously crimes. They are obviously crimes committed in the context of war, but whether they qualify as war crimes uh, as such, it remains to be seen. And uh, it's to the prosecutors and to the judges and to the international law to see. So um, I think that's debatable. Uh, and I see why this, you know, remains somehow in the background, because when we are talking about the loss of human life and, and, right. and human suffering, mm-hmm. objects uh, remain somewhere in the background. But it's an important issue because Ukraine is losing part of its national identity, too, because culture is part of what we are. And it's, it can be regarded to a certain extent uh, more in a philosophical way than in a legal way, maybe, as part of genocide, too. And we've already lost so much, right, over yeah. the decades. So do we know how many war crimes have been committed? Is there a good estimate? Well, as of mid-April, the Prosecutor's General Office of Ukraine indicates a number as high as uh, 80,000 criminal proceedings. Uh, So uh, it's quite a lot, uh, but the number is very likely, the the actual number of war crimes is very likely to be much higher because uh, there are a lot of things happening in the occupied territories or territories where the Ukrainian law enforcement uh, does not have access to. So um, the figure um, might easily cross like uh, 100,000. So, um, you know, it's still, it's still an uncertain area, but uh, even the official number of uh, 80,000 criminal proceedings is, well, a lot. So I mentioned in the beginning those brutal videos of public executions, public beheadings of Ukrainian soldiers. Those videos appear once in a while online, not very often, but do we know how actually widespread that kind of crime is? Again, hard to say. What we know is that not all of the videos that exist uh, do actually make it online. Uh, Quite recently, the Ukrainian ombudsman, uh, Dmitry Lubinets, um, was talking about it in an interview, and he said that his office had received uh, dozens of uh, videos like that, um, very likely actually uh, capturing the, the, the killings or tor- torturings of Ukrainian prisoners of war. So we know there's a lot of that. We know that, again, uh, there is a culture of torture uh, in the Russian army. And uh, again, if you listen back to the um, intercepted uh, conversations of Russian soldiers from last year, from, from last spring, last summer, they discuss it openly and they discuss it in detail. So um, again, it's a method. Uh, sometimes they were just recorded and sometimes the recordings get released, get published on the internet. But it's a small part of what actually happens. That's what we need to remember always. A video is just one case, but it's, it's a culture. And what are they trying to achieve by doing this? I mean, is there a rationale, some sort of strategy, or is this just kind of random spur of anger and brutality? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, there might be this uh, sophisticated reason to instill fear in, in Ukrainians 
But it may be more primitive than that. Uh, it may come down just to boasting, just to, uh, you know, show, yeah, sh saying, yes, I'm a brute, showing, yes, we can do this to you. So uh, it may be very, very basic. The motivation may be very basic. So I, you know, I wouldn't like to look for a very sophisticated motive uh, behind everything they do, uh, because, well, sometimes it's simple. Let's say a part of what they're doing is trying to scare us off. So just like with trying to make us freeze to death and attacking energy infrastructure, let's say they do the public videos for the same reason. At the end of the day, is it working? Uh, is, how is our society reacting to such evidence? Well, to, to a certain part of Ukrainian society, um, it is actually workable. It, it is instilling fear. It is normal, you know, to feel fear when you look at something like that, when you watch a video like that. But if you ask about, you know, the general reaction, uh, I would rather say that Ukrainian society gets angrier. Uh, Ukrainian society um, actually gains resolve uh, because um, it comes down, again it, again, it comes down, you know, to, to, uh, to understanding that they are he here to kill us. They are here to basically exterminate us. And again, this is not something, you know, I'm, I'm trying to exaggerate. They are talking about this on the intercepted phone conversations, that Ukraine should be exterminated, that no matter who, soldiers, men, women, civilian, children, it's, it's a quote from one of the conversations. So um, we understand that we actually, we don't, don't have, uh, you know, uh, a way to negotiate with that. You can negotiate with someone who has the rationale to lead in a, a negotiation. This, you just have to fight. This, you just have to fight back. So this actually adds to the resolve um, at the end of the day. Well, that's my sense. I think that's also a part of the reason why Ukrainians are almost aggressively denying any possibility of considering territory, because these videos are a part of how we see what actually happens on the occupied territories and why we can't possibly subject our people to that kind of life. Because a lot of people think that, you know, life under Russian occupation is just a switch in the flag, a different currency, different language. But no, it's, it's a life of this. It's a life of fearing for your existence, fearing for your survival and war crimes all over the place. Well, yeah. And we have seen this uh, occupation terror wherever Russia actually uh, managed to control a territory. We have seen Bucha, we have seen Arpin, we have seen Kherson. We have seen uh, Izum, we have seen, well, all over the place. It was always the same policy, if you, if you will. Occupation goes with terror. We have seen the same thing in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk regions. In Crimea, uh, too. In Crimea. This isn't a, this isn't a new specifically, thing. Specifically, the Crimean Tatars uh, can talk at length about it. So uh, Donetsk and Luhansk regions in 2014, 2015, Still the same story. Tortures, the basements. Uh, the disappearances. Yes. Well, I can just recommend the book by Stanislav Vaseyev about uh, one of the detention centers in, uh, in Donetsk, which describes it, well, in great detail, actually. So uh, it's Russian policy again. And this we have seen, too. We have seen this in, in, in Georgia. 
there's a, actually a um, decision by the European Court of Human Rights uh, concerning the illegal detentions and inhumane treatment of uh, civilian prisoners on the occupied part of, of Georgia. So uh, it, it's part of the culture. And uh, there's no way you can negotiate about leaving people, subjecting people to, uh, to this kind of life. This is not about, you know, square meters or square kilometers. This is about people who live there. So uh, I, ca I can't even fathom how you can suggest leaving people there under such conditions. It's deeply immoral to, uh, to me as a human being, not as a journalist here, not as a reporter, but simply as a human being. And so how is Ukraine investigating these war crimes? So um, there are actually different, I would say, uh, proceedings. Um, most of them are investigated under the Ukrainian penal code by Ukrainian law enforcement. So when we are talking about the, um, the 80,000 criminal proceedings, we are talking about criminal proceedings under the Ukrainian penal code. There were actually even uh, some court decisions, uh, some verdicts. Another plane is um, collaboration with the international institutions like the International Criminal Court. Um, there are talks about creating a special tribunal for the crimes committed in the context of the Russian-Ukrainian war. And um, finally, well, there are several NGOs who are working in Ukraine too, um, investigating the... Um, the war crimes, Ukrainian NGOs and international NGOs like uh, Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch. Uh, but the thing with them is that they are, mostly what they are doing uh, is just talking to people, just, you know, collecting witness testimonies. And this is, uh, well, to be honest, uh, this is not serious. So uh, it's, it's really not enough to, uh, to investigate. So uh, a lot of those reports by NGOs are just, well, you know, interviews, uh, not corroborated by anything else. You mentioned the International Criminal Court. So I assume the international community is trying to get involved here. They're playing a big role, don't they? Uh, they do. Uh, it's hard, again, to, uh, you know, bring Russia to justice under the international law because Russia basically disregards the, the international legal architecture. Uh, but the International Criminal uh, Court has been quite active since the uh, beginning of, um, of the war. And um, they have actually just recently uh, issued warrants um, to arrest uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, his uh, representative for Ch Children Affairs. Um, Lvova Bilova, and this is actually a case that can lead us to, uh, to genocide. Uh, because, um, again, we have, we have talked about misconceptions surrendering wars and war crimes before. Uh, one misconception, um, actually, uh, about genocide is that it's always, you know, something as big in scale as the Holocaust or uh, the Rwanda genocide. Uh, that is actually not so. Uh, what matters is the intent behind the acts, not the scale uh, 
And if you look at the definition of the genocide itself in the UN Convention about genocide, well, you can, uh, you can understand that there may be genocide when no one is killed. Uh, because one of genocidal acts is uh, forcibly uh, displacing children, uh, deporting children. That's what Russia is doing. And um, actually, that's why the, the charges have been brought. That's why the, the warrants have been issued for this type of crime. So uh, there may be a genocide just based on, on, you know, stealing children. No one is killed, but we are still talking about genocide. That's how it is um, put down in the, um, in the UN Convention. Okay, so there is clearly a push for accountability on the international stage, but how realistic is this? I mean, I think there have been many tribunals about all sorts of conflicts and wars, but how many of them actually had good, useful precedents? Again, it's hard to say. Uh, it's hard to predict uh, because there have been some uh, relative successes. Uh, the Nuremberg trials were a relative success. A special tribunal for um, Yugoslavia was even a more relative success. There have been some good cases for uh, Rwanda, specifically in the International uh, Criminal Court, but there have been failures. And one of the failures, one of the, those that comes to mind uh, directly is um, the case of Omar uh, al-Bashir, the, the ex-president of Sudan. The International Criminal Court has uh, a lot of cases concerning Darfur, concerning the war in Sudan. And um, Omar al-Bashir uh, has like uh, up to, to, to 10 charges of war crimes, three of them uh, for genocide. And he, even after he uh, has lost power in Sudan, uh, he still remains there. He's not, the authorities do not give him to the International Criminal Court. So, uh, you know, just to, uh, the, the analogy with Putin might be here uh, very direct because, uh, well, the guy is there, the guy has lost power, the guy uh, is wanted by the International Criminal Court, but still Sudan doesn't give him away. Um, there's this danger too. So uh, the, uh, the important thing to understand is that the authority of the International Criminal Court is not absolute and they have no means to force a country to give away uh, their citizens. So at the end of the day, there has to be a revolution in Russia. There has to be a collapse of the regime. Something, someone completely different, radically different has to come to power to do something like that. I would say it like this, um, there needs to be a reason for Russia as a country, as a government, as a people to give Putin to uh, the International Criminal Court. So they have to find it in their own best interest. Without it, it will, it will it just will not happen. Have any Russian soldiers been criminally charged yet in Ukraine? Well, 24 of them have already been uh, sentenced, actually. Um, a part of them was sentenced in absenia, but uh, um, 10 of them were present for the trials. The first one was uh, Vadim Shishimarov, the 21-year-old Russian soldier. Uh, he was sentenced for 
killing a Ukrainian civilian, uh, just shooting a Ukrainian civilian in a, on the street. And uh, the thing to understand here is that uh, even those uh, Russian soldiers who uh, are sentenced, they can then be exchanged. And they do get exchanged for Ukrainian soldiers to bring back Ukrainian prisoners. So um, it's very much, I would say, light justice. Because, you know, the punishment is not really there. And this is the important thing we need to keep in mind that just a judgment, just a sentencing with uh, no real punishment means no justice. And um, when we're talking actually about the, all the criminal proceedings in Ukraine and uh, in the context of the international legal architecture, uh, we must also understand that it must not, not take forever. Because, you know, there's this saying that justice delayed is justice denied. Uh, so uh, if it takes forever, it's good for history, but uh, it's bad for accountability. Now we'll be answering a few questions from our supporters on Patreon. Our patrons get a chance to ask us questions before every single episode. They also get exclusive access to thematic discussions, events with editors, and more. You can get such access for as little as $5 a month. It's really easy. Just go to patreon.com slash independent. So one of our supporters was wondering, quote, I'm curious what information you have about the number of Ukrainian children who have been kidnapped and taken to Russia. Are these children being adopted into Russian families or are they being collected or sold and exploited by criminals? This is actually something you're, you've been investigating, right? My colleague has. It's, it's not really my topic, but what I can say is that uh, the numbers uh, well, are all over the place. Because um, Ukrainian authorities talk about uh, um, dozens of th thousands of children, uh, but the numbers we get from Russia, they are talking about hundreds of uh, thousands of children. So uh, the number is very unclear. It is hard to verify it because, again, most of the children are taken away from the occupied territories. There's no way to verify where they are what they are doing and what's happening to them. So what is actually the process of this kidnapping? I assume they're not just, you know, kidnapping them off the street. Uh, mostly no. Um, it often happens, you know, like spontaneously. So they invite those kids, invite uh, to a camp or to a, to a place to rest, you know, to, to an institution, to, uh, to a hospital, whatever. Uh, on the Russian territory or on the Russian or strongly Russian-controlled territory like Crimea, and they never get back, and they are never allowed to go back, and then they are transported to Russia. There are some that are just being taken away too, uh, that happens, and it mostly concerns, uh, as far as I know, uh, children in different institutions that have no families or have you know, uh, no legal guardians. So they are just being taken away. So there are different ways to transport them. Uh, sometimes they're being taken away with their parents, but mostly they just, uh, they are just, uh, they are being taken away by themselves in groups uh, by dozens of kids. And not all of these are orphans. Like many of these kids have 
living parents, Ukrainian families who are waiting for them, right? Yes, yes. So um, there are cases actually, you know, it, it, a child may be placed in an institution not because he's an orphan or they are orphans, just because there are problems in the family for different reasons, but they do have actual living parents that want to see them, that want to care for them, and they are unable to, to, to do so. Uh, so uh, that happens too. And what does Russia do with all of those allegedly hundreds of thousands of kids? You know, I would actually advise not to, uh, you know, create myths about them being exploited by criminals or sold uh, on the black market because we just don't have uh, the evidence to confirm that. There may be rumors about that, but if we don't have evidence, let's not, you know, just create bubbles. What we know is that they are sometimes adopted there. They are sometimes uh, and most often uh, being kept in, again, institutions for orphans or um, other kids. So uh, um, they are just being, for the time being, they are mostly just being kept there and uh, educated as Russians. And they are trying to turn them from Ukrainians to Russians to acculturate them in, in a way. So this is what we know is happening. And the kids uh, talk about it themselves, those who, who come back to Ukraine, because we have kids that actually, you know, manage to successfully come back to Ukraine. And they tell the stories about how they are forced to sing the Russian national anthem, how they are being mocked for being Ukrainians, and so on and so on. Another question was, what are the key narratives that the Moscow regime spreads as propaganda worldwide to distract from or cover their war crimes? Can you suggest some talking points to counter that propaganda? Well, to understand the Russian propaganda, uh, the first thing you need to know is that it's not about uh, debunking facts or uh, presenting a different reality. It's about presenting different realities. It's about uh, diluting the, the, the idea of reality itself. So um, it's about creating as many possible accounts of an event as possible. Uh, we've seen it with Bucha, for example. Yeah, There was one version that it was just a fake. Another version was that, it were, uh, that the, the corpses, the, the bodies were victims of Ukrainian Nazis and armed forces. Another account was that it there were no bodies that were actors, and so on and so on. So you, they produce a lot of different narratives just to bury you in it. So uh, the important thing to do is just to follow the facts, mostly to protect yourself from the Russian propaganda. Uh, common sense is enough, because often uh, the things they want to make you believe make no sense at all. Uh, they don't hold together. They just fall apart if you start examining critically. So um, that's the, the, the best approach uh, to me. The, the, nothing, nothing more is specifically needed. Just follow the facts and use your common sense. That's all. Well, Danilo, thank you very much for joining us. This was very interesting. Thank you. 
Also this week, Slovak Defense Ministry confirmed that 13 MiG-29 jets have already been transferred to Ukraine. European Union Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Borrell said that Russia is once again blocking 50 ships with urgently needed grain in the Black Sea. And Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko held a meeting with Denis Pushilin, the leader of Russia's proxy administration in occupied territories of the Donetsk Oblast, allegedly to discuss humanitarian aid. Ukraine responded by recalling its ambassador to Belarus. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to this podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash independent and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.